Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you to rise as we read God's word. The passage this morning is John chapter 11, but we're just going to read a few uh, verses from it, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 17 through 44. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus answered her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there was a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes 
and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. What a passage. Well, John 11 tells us the story of the final sign of Christ's ministry. Now, we still have a long way to go in this book. We still got 10 chapters left after this. But from here on out, all of these chapters in some way deal with the road to the crucifixion. So this moment is the climax of Jesus's public ministry in this gospel. And in this passage that we just read, he makes this important and glorious declaration. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And he performs this miracle. One of the most astonishing miracles that, that could ever be. A definitive miracle. He raises a man from the dead. It is truly the last and greatest proof John gives us, showing us Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. But in the midst of all that, there's something in this chapter that I want us to focus on, something that I don't want us to miss today, that in the midst of this passage that is about the big picture, all the stuff that Jesus came to do, in this moment that has so much to do with the overarching message of the gospel and the purpose of Jesus, in the midst of that, we have this very intimate, zoomed-in, close-up picture of Jesus' heart. We get a glimpse of God's very personal and unique love for each of us. This sign... The sign of the raising of Lazarus can really only be understood when you understand that the whole passage is framed by Jesus' love. It's framed by his care for a small family. His conversation with two women. The tears that he sheds at the funeral of one man. His friend, Lazarus. So this passage it does teach us what Jesus came to do, that he is the resurrection and the life. But it also shows us that his love is really central to his purpose. And we can't understand Jesus' work without knowing for ourselves, firsthand, the love of Christ that drives all of his work. So that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at those three things. First, the wisdom of his love. Second, the ferocity of Jesus' love. And then finally, the message of Jesus' love. So let's, let's open up by talking about the wisdom of Jesus' love. This whole passage, it opens up highlighting that this is a family Jesus loved. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, this family of three, they were really close to Jesus. Right alongside of the apostles, these were people who he knew well, who he spent time with, who uh, were truly his friends. They were in a unique class in the Bible. And that's why it's really shocking when we read the setup for this passage. In verse 5, it says that he loved them. And so, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He knew what was wrong with Lazarus was serious. He knew that Lazarus was going to die from whatever was wrong with him. And yet... Because he loved him, he stayed there two more days. 
But John doesn't let us guess why he hung around. He doesn't make us wait for the answer. He tells us right from the outset. He says, this sickness is not one that leads to death, but it is actually so that God's son, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified. And then a few verses later, he says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So Jesus waited to act. Because he knew that this temporary moment of suffering was meant for the glory of God and for the faith of all people that would come after this moment. And there's a principle in here that I think every Christian eventually comes to understand as they get to know Jesus and walk with the Lord. That God's love, it's always wise. But that also means that God's love doesn't just pander to our wants. God doesn't always give us what we want, right? God instead prioritizes our holiness, often over our happiness. Jesus, he loved this family, right? And because he loved them, he didn't immediately give them what they wanted. His plan in responding so slowly, in waiting days to respond to them, was to give them a better gift. It was to give them the gift of a deep and abiding faith in his salvation that would last forever. He wanted their spiritual maturity more than he wanted their immediate happiness. And that's a hard way to love people, isn't it? To respond with what somebody needs instead of just giving them what they want. If you've ever had to deal with children, you know that experience, right? Maybe they're asking for dessert before dinner or some extra screen time or a later curfew. I currently am now the parent of two middle schoolers instead of just one. And so it seems like every week I am having this negotiation about what social media we're allowed to have, right? Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, which one and how much. And, and the refrain is that really familiar one. You've all heard it, right? Well, everybody else has it. So why can't I? Now in that moment, I have a painful choice to make. The choice is, do I do what is best for them, or do I do what's easiest for me? Do I do what they want and give them what they want and just make them happy, or do I do what I know will benefit them in the long run? Have you ever been there? You know, it actually takes more love to withhold what they want. It's easier for me to do what they want because then the argument's over. <laughs> then I can move on with my day. That kind of selfish love is always easier. But God's love is never selfish. He gives us what is best for us because he knows that our holiness is far more important than our happiness. And sometimes that means that he's going to let us go through hard things, right? Sometimes he's going to let us endure pain that just doesn't make any sense to us. And we see that here with Mary and Martha. When Jesus finally gets there, we find out that this guy has been dead for four days. One, two, three, four days he has been dead. And each of these sisters comes to him at, at different moments. You might not have noticed it as we were reading, but 
They actually say the exact same thing when they get to Jesus. First in verse 21, then in verse 32. First Martha and then Mary. And the thing that they say is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even though they come with the same question, Jesus responds to each of them pretty differently. Because he knows them. Because he loves them. Because he understands the best way to deal with them in this moment of pain and suffering. So first, with Martha, he answers her with this amazing theological declaration. He says, your brother will rise again. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So she comes to him and he just pulls back the curtain. He says, here's exactly what's going on. Here's my purpose. Here's my plan. Here's the theology behind it all. And that's exactly what she needed. That is where she was. That's what she needed to hear. And so when he asks her, do you believe this? Well, she responds, yes. Yeah, I do believe it. Yes, Lord. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. But then, when he gets to Mary, it's a different picture. Verse 33. He comes to Mary and he says, she says, if you've been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and he responds, it says, he saw her weeping, and the Jews who were with her weeping, and he was deeply moved and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. So Jesus, when he comes to Mary, he doesn't teach. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to tell her why all these things are happening. He just simply walks to the grave, and he weeps. There's a good lesson for us in that difference there. That there is a time for us as Christians that to minister out of truth, to minister from our heads, and there's also a time for us to minister out of our hearts, to minister out of our feelings. I think in this church, as, as Presbyterians, um, we tend to do a lot more of the head stuff, right? We, we are much better at those head responses than the heart responses sometimes. We're much more likely to respond with an education than some emotion, than with some teaching, than some feeling. That may be one of the reasons why a lot of people are turning away from the church these days. That they think of Christians as people who are callous, that they are uh, indifferent to the pain and the suffering that is happening in this world. You know, over my years of ministry, I have sat with a lot of people and heard a lot of hard stories about churches that have wielded the truth like a knife when they should have just taken the time to sit and listen, hear about the pain and the struggle in, in somebody's journey. Try to relate to them and feel for them. There's a lesson for us to learn here. And you know that if you've ever been suffering, sometimes the worst thing you can hear is one of those good theological statements. Don't worry, you know, God's going to work all this out for your good. 
or don't you, God's not going to give you more than you can bear. Those things are true, but that is the last thing we need to hear in that moment. Christ, in his love, knows better. He's wise. He knows that there's a time for the ministry of truth, and there's a time for the ministry of tears, and he uses both of them well. So that's, that's the first thing we see about this passage. Christ, in his love, he's wise. Not just giving us what we want, but giving us the things we need. And responding to our suffering in wise ways with both truth and tears, with both his head and his heart. But the major thing we see in this passage is the ferocity of his love. This passage is actually very important to me personally. I have now preached on this three times. And the first time I preached on it was about five years ago. Another, my previous church, we're going through the Gospel of John, and I happened to come across it. But then two months after that, I had a chance to preach this passage again, and it was at the funeral of a close friend of mine. He had died of an overdose at 36 years old. And I didn't know it at the time, but that moment would kick off a season of chaos and upheaval in my life that would change me forever. And so it has been pretty interesting to go back and look at it this week and revisit that and, and think about even this message that God gives you the things that you need, not the things that you want. <laughs> Having lived through that instead of just talked about it. Having experienced the hard times. Having tasted those hard times. And what I, I know about it now is that in our pain, we learn that God really cares. It's in our pain that we find out that his love is not just a theological idea, but it's a reality. It is a power that carries us through those darkest times. And I don't know if there is another place in all of Scripture where we get to see that power, where we get to see that love of Jesus manifested in such a visceral and raw way like we do in this passage. We could all just take a minute, you know. We, it would be good for us, I think, to, to sit quietly and just think about verse 35. Jesus wept. Can you get your mind around that? Can you even comprehend the notion that the creator of the universe is weeping over the death of a single person? When Paul describes Jesus in Colossians, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, that, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus is. And he's weeping. I don't think I've ever seen my dad cry. And here we see the Lord of all creation weeping alongside of his friend. Don't miss that. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Because at the center of our faith is a God-man. Jesus, who is fully God, who has 
the power to bring life, the power to raise people from the dead, but he is also fully human. He has felt our pain firsthand. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And when we're suffering ourselves, when you find yourself going through one of those dark valleys, when you find yourself in that moment where you're saying, I don't know why God would let this happen to me. I don't know why God would allow the evil in the world to just keep going the way it is. Well, at this moment here, we can at least rule out one answer. It's certainly not because God doesn't care. Jesus wept. But let's think about that a little more. Why is Jesus crying? Why does Jesus weep? Why is he sad at all? Why didn't he just show up and say, hey guys, don't worry. I'm going to bring him back from the dead. Sorry I'm late. Why isn't he in a better mood? Why is he weeping? Well, the key to understanding it is in verse 33. That verse unlocks the whole passage. It says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in spirit. Everybody say deeply moved. Now, our English translation, it, it softens that a little bit for us. Deeply moved, the word behind it, really means anger. D.A. Carson, who's a well-known Bible scholar, he said a better translation for this would probably be he was outraged in spirit. And the message translation actually does kind of go for it. I think it's great. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, a deep anger welled up within him. If you get that, it'll change the way you understand this story. Jesus is more than sad. He's enraged. And of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? I just said he was the firstborn of all creation. He is the one that created the world. He was there when the world was good. He was there when everything was the way it should be. And here he is as he looks at Mary's grief. Jesus sees not only her pain, but the pain of the whole human race. In Lazarus' death, in that moment, he was looking directly in the eye of the enemy he'd come to defeat. We shouldn't be surprised in this passage that's all about love to realize that in that moment of Christ's deep love, he was also very angry. A loving God has to get angry. Rebecca Pippert, she says that anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. But to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and hostile to injustice. And that is what we see here. Jesus' tears in John 11, they're compassionate tears. But they're also vengeful tears. They are the tears of righteous anger. These are the tears that say to Satan and to sin and to death, no more. It is time for you to pay for what you've done. 
One of my favorite movies is Tombstone. Has anybody seen that movie? It's getting old now. It's like 30 years old at this point. But it's a cowboy movie. It's about Wyatt Earp. And he moves to this town. He's older. He's, he's retired. And he's trying to just make an honest living for himself and his family. But the town is overrun by these bad guys, the cowboys. So he tries to stay out of it for as long as he can. And at about at one point in the movie, his family is attacked. And he can't take it anymore. So he applies. He becomes a U.S. Marshal again. And there's this scene where... His whole family is loaded up on the train, and the bad guys think he's on the train as well, and the train starts to drive off, and they're yelling at the train, and all of a sudden, Wyatt Earp shows up behind the bad guys, and he corners one of them and gets him on the ground, and he says, you called down the thunder, and now you got it, and it kicks off the, this awesome scene of him going up, rounding up all the bad guys, taking care of business. It's incredible. But it's this righteous anger. And I think that is exactly how Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus. John Calvin says that when Jesus walks to the tomb, he goes as a champion who is prepared for conflict. He is overcome by his hatred of sin. He is weeping over it. He is enraged by it. In this moment, Jesus is the righteous wrath of God in the flesh. Look at that picture. Think about that picture. And if you're ever tempted to believe that God is just sitting around indifferent as, as people suffer, think about that anger. If you're ever tempted to believe that God is unmoved, while injustice is happening around this world, while the drug epidemic rages, while racism and oppression and division tear communities apart. Look at this picture. If you're ever tempted to take your own sin lightly, God hates evil. He hates sin and all of its consequences. He hates what Satan has done to this world, and he will not rest until death is defeated. And so he comes like a conqueror and he commands at the tomb, Lazarus, come out. The love of Christ, it's wise and it's tender when he deals with us in our pain. But it's also passionate and it is ferocious and it is unrelenting when it comes to evil in this world. And even in our own lives. And there's a message in all of that. That's the third point. Christ's love tells us a message about him. We also see it in verse 33. It says that when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. He was troubled. Now, why was he troubled? What does that mean? Well, John uses that exact same word for us in the next chapter. When Jesus starts to talk about his crucifixion, when he starts to think about what's coming for him, and he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. 
Jesus is troubled because he knows what has to happen. Jesus knows what it's going to cost him to defeat death once and for all. He knows, and it troubles him. It horrifies him. It's not a coincidence that John uses this same word. What he's telling us is that Jesus, as he is walking to raise Lazarus, is already thinking about the road that lies ahead of him. See, up until now, in this gospel, it has been one sign after another. It has been debating who Jesus is and what these things all mean. But from this point on, this whole gospel is going to be about the lead up to his death. The next ten chapters, they all take place in the final week of Jesus' life. This miracle is the last sign. It's the greatest sign because it is the first step towards the cross. Verse 53 of the passage, it tells us that from that moment on, from that day on, the people plotted to take his life. He knows what this sign is going to cost him. But here is where Jesus and Wyatt Earp part ways. Because this moment of righteous anger is also a picture of Christ's love, even for his enemies. Jesus didn't, at that moment, start wiping out every person who was opposed to him. Because that's all of us. We are all opposed to him. Scripture tells us we are all his enemies. That sin is not just some abstract force out there that is oppressing us, but we are all guilty of it. We are all guilty of rebelling against God. We are all guilty of unbelief. We are all marred by sin. And we deserve nothing less than death. We deserve to die. But this is the message that we see. Here's what Jesus shows us in his love right here. In order to defeat death, he'll have to die for us. That in order to bring Lazarus out of the tomb, he's going to have to be laid in the tomb. In the, on the cross, he's going to go and suffer, not just for the sin of Lazarus, but on the cross, he takes the sin for the whole world on himself. On the cross, he bore the righteous wrath of God in our place. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. Because he loves you with that same intimacy and care that he loved that little family. That he loved that man, Lazarus. That's how much Jesus loves you. He went to death to bring you life. And because that happened, we can say right along with him that he is the resurrection and the life for everyone who believes. So let me ask you that same question that he asked to Martha. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that God loves you today? Do you believe that he has no anger left for you today because it's all been poured out on Jesus? Do you believe that even in your sorrow and your pain, whatever suffering that you might be going through right now, that God is with you? That he weeps with you. 
that he has pain in his heart when he sees your suffering? Do you believe that if you call him your savior, he will never abandon you? Jesus is with you. He's for you today. That's the message of this letter. And when we know that, it changes us. When we know his love, his resurrection power actually comes into our life and starts to bring us a new life. It starts to give us a heart like his. It starts to make us like him so that that it turns us into a people who, like him, we hate evil. That we lament and that we weep when we see suffering and pain and injustice in this world. It turns us into a people who can endure suffering. Because we know there's a God who loves us, who won't leave us behind. And, And finally, it turns us into a people who can share that love with others. That compassionate and wise and ferocious and redeeming love of Jesus. May God make us people like that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your love. And I, Lord, I am grateful for the, just the emotions of Jesus. That he feels the depths of the pain, the depths of the anger, and the depths of the joy of what it means to follow you. And what it means to experience the difficulty and the sin and the hardships of this life. And I thank you, God, for the reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that our resurrection life, it's, it's not something far off that we're waiting for someday, but that resurrection life begins the moment we believe. That even now he is undoing what evil and sin has done in this world. And as we look back on Lazarus being raised, we look forward to the day when we will all be raised. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.